When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brandspark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. After I got sick, I felt outrage. Why, why me? Like, I'm, I'm a decently good person. And like, almost everything that was happening to me was totally out of my control. And I needed to get real about that quick. In my family, when we have hard things to talk about, anything, it could be uh, even death, we, we're kind of funny about it because we, that's the way we talk. We like to have fun while we're talking about hard things. But I ran into someone doing this podcast who was given the worst possible news and turned it into a charming, funny, insightful book. I think you'll really enjoy listening to the conversation I had with Kate Bowler. We talked in our studio in Manhattan, and from the minute she came in, she was bubbling with energy and a really disarming sense of humor. If you hadn't read her book, you probably wouldn't know she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. I think maybe this was because she's had to devote so much time, so much practice to how she relates to the people around her. And this was true from the first minute she heard about how serious her illness was. It turns out to be really important who tells you and how they explain it to you. When I first heard the words stage four cancer, they gave me the intern. I mean, Mm. I was lying in a hospital bed, and this, like, sweet little, basically 12-year-old in medicine with, like, the shortest coat came by, (laughs) and he was like, hi. (laughs) He looked so nervous, and his nerves made me nervous, and it was 4 a.m. And I just remember thinking, like, oh, buddy, you drew the short straw, didn't you? And they just sent you along to me. Mm. And uh, it does make you wish that there was— Like, the person who knew how to give the talk is the one that sits you down at the right time with the right people. And it did really feel almost immediately like I was behind glass. Mm. And they were having one experience, and I was having another, and I wasn't able to, like, reach across and get them to to get down on my level and to look at me and to, like, even just a hand on my arm and say, like, this is what's happening right now. Because mostly it was me looking up words like metastasis or— um, or a tone um, that I like to call hostage negotiator neutral, <laughs> where they're like, Ms. Bowler, we understand that you, and it's this like, I'm managing you tone, yeah. and I'm on the other side being like, you think I'm crazy, don't you think I'm going to jump? 
it seemed to me it always boiled down to that gown they give you that exposes your rear end. Yes. There's a, a message in that, that you're no longer the person you were when you came in with your clothes on. Yeah. You're this patient thing. Yeah. At least that's the message I get wearing the gown. They yeah. probably don't intend that message. But the transaction builds out from there. Yeah. And there's a bridge that has to be crossed. I'm lying on the gurney. The doctor comes in, stands over me. It's, it's a task for the doctor to make contact with this person who's already been diminished by just changing clothes. You, you were diagnosed with stage four cancer. And then at a certain point, you found out that there was a trial you could take part in? When they gave me my diagnosis, they said, there's a 90% chance you just have regular colon cancer. And then there's a 7% chance that you have this anomaly in which the cells will just keep replicating themselves. And that's a death sentence. There's nothing, there's no chemo that can keep up with that kind mm. of growth. But there's a 3% chance that you have this um, very particular kind of cancer in which it's a cell replication disorder, but there's certain kinds of treatment that would be available to you if that were true. And so I thought, oh, I'm definitely the 7%. Like, it's just the way your brain goes when you've gotten the bad news like that. And I thought, you know, I can't really hope for that 3% where there's possibilities. So when I got, maybe a couple weeks later, I got a phone call. And on my answering machine, it was a lovely nurse's aide that said, the doctor said to tell you that you have the magic cancer and you know what that is, which is what I called that 3% chance. And so I like jump up and down and screamed. And I was like, I have the magic cancer. I have the magic cancer. <laughs> which like, is what, like the Larry David thing. You have the good cancer or the bad cancer. You know? I definitely had the good kind because yeah. then I could enter that clinical trial. And you're in that trial now? <laughs> I was in that trial for a little over a year. And then I um, stayed on that drug out of the trial. And I get scans every three months that let me know if the tumors are still in check. And so it, um, it's just like purgatory, I guess. Mm. Unlike what I had when I almost died in Chile on one really hard night to live through because the pain was, I've been told, the worst pain you can feel. And they carted me down a bumpy mountain road an hour and a half to his little town in Chile called La Serena. And a really wonderful surgeon figured out almost immediately what was wrong with me. And he communicated to me beautifully. He said, here's what's happened. Some of your intestine has gone bad. And we have to cut out the bad part oh. and sew the two good ends together. Isn't that perfect? Yeah. That ease had, that he gave me was very important. I wasn't struggling with what's going to happen to me. I wasn't in a panic. So the the difference, I think, big difference between what I went through that night, where I, I did think uh, one of the outcomes would be that I wouldn't wake up alive. Mm. The difference is I just had that for a few minutes I didn't have time to reflect on it every morning when I woke up, wondering how long this was going to go on. Am I yeah. getting what the differences yeah. between I, what we experienced? Well, I think there's a crisis and a chronic management, too, that happens when anyone, when you either go through something terrible or people you love do, is 
they kind of invite different responses. For the crisis, there's often like a very big splash with the people around you. And like everyone's trying to grapple with the information. And, and you the, have to deal with a lot of different personalities. Yeah. People with different approaches. And medical decisions that have to be made on the fly. Like it's very intense. Um, and then there's the kind of illness in which things can be intense, but it's so much more drawn out. And then you get different kinds of problems, like uh, the people get bored. I mean, Ooh, that's I, interesting. I get bored of my own suffering. Yeah. And um, you read that in them. You read that, boy, and you're not entertaining enough I am for not. your old news. Yeah, I am. I'm old. And, like, I recently, uh, it was a couple months ago, and I had this really terrible scan, and everything looked really bad for me. And thankfully, it turned out to be a medical error. But at that time, when I was trying to then tell friends and family, hey, everyone, like, this does not look good for me, everyone was struggling to understand that it was an emergency again because they're mm. like, oh, yeah, 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 you have stage cancer for stage four cancer. Like, no, 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 it's new bad. It's oh. it's more. It's like when the volume is turned up really loudly, you're like, it's leaving louder. But it was <laughs> harder for anyone to process. So I I almost wanted to talk to other people who've had like chronic illnesses and ask them, how do you think about managing your illness when it's no longer news anymore. Your book is called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Yeah. Now, did, did you mean that ironically? Uh, yes. The love part. No, I no, there are lies I have loved. I Like what? Well, I think I thought that I could be the architect of my own life, that... I was maybe the exception to the rule that bad things could happen to anybody. I thought that I, as a hardworking, sometimes shiny person, that I could make a way. And then for myself, no matter what the obstacle. And like, I've been scrappy at times in my life. So I figured if with a little hard work and determination, I can figure anything out. And then out of the blue, I got stage four cancer. And I found that I had to do some digging in myself and figure out if there were some beautiful delusions that maybe I had been certain of all along. That's interesting. What would what would be an example of some of the delusions that you you had to, you had to rethink? I guess. Well, I think the first. Um, so I'm an expert in the American prosperity gospel, mm-hmm. which is this movement that says that God rewards the right kind of faith with health and wealth. And so I spent a decade traveling around interviewing people in the pews and people behind the pulpit about what they could expect from God. And if you'd asked me, like, do you believe that? I would say, oh, no, no, I'm absolutely not the kind of person who thinks that good things always happen to good people. Uh, but then after I got sick, I was, I felt outrage. Like, why, why me? Like, I'm, I'm a decently good person. And I don't deserve this. I mean, I think I don't. And like, I got very, you know, especially not just for yourself, but like, you look at your all the beautiful things in your life, like your my son and my husband, and I thought, like, this can't happen to me. This can't happen to them. And like, m- like maybe I could outwork this. But as it turns out, I don't have a cancer lab in my house. And, like, almost everything that was happening to me was totally out of my control, and I needed to get real about that quick. Did you? Are you saying that you, were, you found that 
you had actually accepted the idea that you were studying and thought you hadn't accepted, but you had? Well, not like I was a convert, like a secret convert to the prosperity gospel, but maybe that there are very common ideas, both in myself and in American culture, that says Mm -hmm. that with a pair of bootstraps and Mm -hmm. some— If you work hard, you'll succeed. Yeah, I think I—that— even though I'm Canadian, that like I was maybe a big believer in the American dream uh, until everything fell apart. Right after I got sick, I wrote this New York Times article about me trying to grapple with my own prosperity gospel. And I th- think the point was, like, please don't pour your certainty on my pain. Like, sometimes some pain just can't be explained. I don't know why this happened. Don't pour your certainty on my pain. (laughs) That's what I was hoping for. Uh, And then, of course, uh, then people thought, you know, she just, what she needs is more certainty. (laughs) 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 So I got like five, 6,000 emails, pieces of mail. Five or 6,000? I was just like flooded with. How many did you read? Oh, I read a lot of them at first, partly because I just felt so bad because so many people, what they were trying to communicate was, yes, my life fell apart too. Mm. And also here's how you can fix it. The desire to connect with that other person who's saying, I get how fragile life is. But the part that was painful was there's a lot of intense um, minimizing. I'll never forget this uh, older lady wrote to me to say that um, it was my stage four cancer was probably bad, but not as bad as when she found out at 60 that she was adopted. <laughs> I was oh, like, what? what? Like, Wait a minute. I, How She took the trouble to write It was a this? very long letter, handwritten, and I thought, well, yeah, you know, um, it's not just that I think stage four cancer is a tiny bit rough, but like, can't they both be bad? You know, it reminds me of Mel, Mel Brooks's definition of the difference between tragedy and comedy. Tell me. Comedy is when somebody falls into a sewer. Tragedy is when you fall into a sewer. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah, there was, um, I think people forgot almost immediately that I wasn't like um like a voice actor hired to play the part of someone who is suffering. <laughs> but I was like legitimately suffering. I would be in the hospital and I'd look down and I'd get sometimes really intense, sometimes mean-spirited emails. And I think like, don't you get I'm just trying not to die right now? Like, This is the most essential part of communicating to me is remembering that there's somebody at the other end of your communication yeah. and it's absent on the internet almost yes. entirely yes. that's right that's or at right. least to a great extent people spray their feelings out at someone sometimes very often at someone in particular yeah you know they'll 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 latch on to a posting and have an exchange with the person you're stupid why don't you try thinking you know, why don't you just try dying? You know, I mean, it goes on and on. It gets yeah. as bad as it can get. And they don't think there's somebody reading that being affected by it. Well, I started to think of the category as sufferer meets critic. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, not now. Yeah, exactly. So and you have categories of, of yeah. responses. So, so what are they? There were some minimizing. Um, those are the people that start every sentence with at least. 
At least. There was a lot of like past tense, like, at least you had a son. Oh, my like, God. Well, yeah, but the beautiful things are the very reason why I'm fighting like hell to live. So what do you think they're going through when they when they say that? When they say at, at least, you know, it's, yeah. it sounds to me like they're trying to get over this moment themselves. They don't want to share much of the pain you're going through. You know, that's probably that's probably one strong impulse is trying to put their own pain in perspective and maybe other people's pain seems to be in competition with theirs. So you have minimizers and um, the at least people. Yeah, minimizers, uh, teachers, they're the ones who very frequently um, recently seen a documentary or Googled something important. What's funny is most of my smartest, my smartest friends usually became teachers right away where they said, like, look, I did a lot of research and your cancer is, and then this giant barrage of information. And I think they, too, are trying to help me get back to a sense that we can outlearn and outknow. But that's, I mean, that's also part of the hubris of the whole thing is, like, I could fully understand my cancer and still die from it. It sounds to me like you actually have a reaction to these people who are trying to help that enables you to feel a certain amount of discomfort, but you also seem to have an empathic reaction toward them. You you seem to sense that they are trying to help, I think, but it, but I also get the overall feeling that you kind of wish they'd do so a better tired. job of it. Oh man, the truth is, I'm just tired. I'm like, yeah. I'm tired because I have incurable cancer, and that means I don't get to be done. And like, there's no math on my suffering. It's not like I get to say. You know, at 35, I had this bad diagnosis, but it's like I, I just get one blow, and then from now on, it's going to be you know, smooth sailing. Like Nobody's life runs on math like that. No, no. And so because of that, I don't get to then absorb the blow and think that I'm progressing in some way. I have to be as uncertain about the future as everyone else. And so I do wish people would cut me a little slack. I mean— I had friends who right away just said um, that they felt that they couldn't hear updates about how I was doing. Like people who love me, they and couldn't they hear just, updates. How they just they, didn't. They only wanted want to hear to know. good news. Yeah, or... I mean, they just didn't want to know anymore, and it felt very cruel. But I think what they were expressing was that I was now representative of a thought that they couldn't have. Yeah. Well, we, none of us want to believe that we're going to die. You're, in a way, put in a position where you have to think of that. <laughs> yeah, but even I can't think of it. Like, I really, it's an impossible thought. How how could you possibly imagine your heart not beating and, you know, all the things that make What do you think you about when you think of it? This is really interesting. When, when you think about what, and yeah, I imagine you think about it more than most of us do. Because it's, it's what you're struggling with. What do you think it would be like? Do you think that do you do you have a vision of what it would be like to not be here? It's funny. The second I got sick, I started to think of my mental processes as double brain. Like one part of my brain is like exactly the way I was before, where I always imagine everything's going to work out, and I'm making plans to you know run a marathon or mm. at least try 5K again. 
And then the other part of my brain is always making plans that I will come to the end of myself and that I will have to be making plans for a life for my family beyond me. Mm. And they're always running concurrently, which is exhausting. It's like I've got two decision trees to make for any major decision. Like saving money or do you get a house or, you know, any any decision has two very complicated decision trees associated with it. And the one that pictures life without me, I never think of myself— I only know how to press this despair into hope for my family. And so you just, any plans you make is like emotional triage. You like cut off all the Mm -hmm. terrible parts of that fear. And then you transform them into beautiful ideas for other people. And so weirdly, picturing death can only feel like love for someone else. I think you make a real contribution just on that point alone, with with your book and other things you've written, where you really allow us to think about death and dying and what other people are going through as they have various responses to that fact that the one, it's the one universal fact we yeah. all face. Yeah. And yeah. I personally benefit a lot from denial. I, I think— uh, Yeah. Well, whatever whatever happens to me, I'll get I'll find a way to get around it to, to the best <laughs> best way I can. So, you know? almost all my friends at school, because I work in an esteemed university with many wine and cheese functions, and um, and so most of my friends are old. Like they're pretty old. Yeah. They don't love it when I draw attention to it, but they are. <laughs> and like we've really entered a new phase of our relationship ever since they're not allowed to complain quite as robustly as uh, they did before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we'll sit there and we'll talk a lot about because I will admit I thought that just by the sheer fact that they're old that they had grappled with their mortality. No, and it wasn't true. No, we're still grappling with our youth, <laughs> which we think we're in, right in the midst of. When we come back, Kate tells about the tsunami of really strange reactions that came her way and how she handled them. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and I'm Alan Alda, and now back to my conversation with Kate Bowler. I love the examples you give in the book of some of the worst ways people respond to somebody who's really, really sick. Oh, I love this one. (laughs) 
the reason you're dying is God needed an angel. Oh, yeah. God's very much hoping for new harp players all the time. <laughs> I mean, the truth is it's heresy, right? Like, in Scripture, it's like it's meant to be that God, that angels are created beings, like created from scratch. It's not like people just get wings and a halo or something. So it's, it's officially heresy, but it's just an awful thing to say to somebody is if God's in the business of murdering loved ones in order to acquire and recruit workers. I love this because he needs a bigger and bigger band. Yeah. That's right. Who will play the symbols? Right. God is closing a door but opening a window. What, what does that mean oh when, when somebody says that to yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, my I favorite— I mean, you need fresh air when you're dying? <laughs> yeah. I don't get it. God's an interior decorator. They're trying to say there will be a new opportunity for you, don't you worry. Uh. Um, but my favorite response came from a friend of mine who uh, lost both his legs to bone cancer. And he called me, and I picked up the phone, and he said, Kate— how am I supposed to get through all of these windows God keeps opening? <laughs> and I thought, I could not love you more. <laughs> what, do people actually say this? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Yeah, but it, this is killing oh, you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could die. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. That's going to be awkward for you. Yeah, yeah. No, they make all kinds of promises. Uh, yeah, but they're, they're sure that it's a, it's a character lesson. And I'm learning. And this is okay because I'm learning something. The one that's really interesting is what's on the cover of your book. Everything yeah. happens for a reason. Yeah. People say that. I, I hear people say it all the time about trivial things, yeah. relatively trivial. Yeah. But they actually say it to you, to a person who's facing death. I think it's the hope that everything is like a boomerang. You know, that if you put something good out, it rewards effort, then it's going to come back. Yeah, but the corollary of that oh, is yeah. if something comes back to you, that means you sent the wrong boomerang out and you don't even know exactly. what you did. I did this. I must deserve it. And I mean, the only bit about that that's meant to be empowering is that if if I did something to cause this, then maybe I can be the cure. Mm. And so they'll ask me to dig deep spiritually or in my eating habits and please don't eat bacon anymore, they'll tell me. I mean, they're, they're hoping that 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 I will figure it out just in time to cure myself. Which always sounds to me like it's a one-sided communication. They're sending their own boomerang out, which is if I tell you something that puts to rest in my mind that I don't have to worry about you anymore, I'll feel better. Yeah. It's a way under the guise of helping you feel better. Yeah. We feel better by— in a way, denying the whole experience and denying you the chance of hearing from us, boy, I really feel bad that you feel bad. I'll never forget sitting, I'm just sitting in a waiting room. Yeah. And this awful physician's assistant who just was supposed to do a checklist where she's supposed to ask me how I'm really feeling. Mm. And instead, she looks past me and she says, well, the sooner you get used to the idea that you're going to die, the better. She said, what? The sooner you get used to the idea that you're going to die, the better. And This is uh, wonderful advice if you're talking to a lamppost. <laughs> I imagine you have to develop a policy, a strategy for handling these categories of what people say to you because yeah. otherwise, each time they do it, it knocks you down a little bit. Yeah, it does. H- have you developed strategy? Like you say, oh, here comes the uh, the teacher. 
Yeah, I'll, no, I'll, I'll that's so funny you said that because when my two of my best friends came with me for my first chemotherapy appointment, and I was so nervous because everything I'd heard, it felt like they were just going to pump poison in my body and that I would suddenly, I don't know, feel, I just thought I'll feel totally different. It won't be the same. And so I was so grateful they were there. And like only best friends can do, they immediately came up with nicknames for everyone that we met. So there was like Needle Nancy and like Chipper Chad. But my favorite was uh, they nicknamed Exaggerator Eve because she said (laughs) she was going through the list of my side effects and she looked over and very seriously was like, I have noticed that when patients undergo chemotherapy and they take a nap, they never wake up. (laughs) I was like... Like they like they die. Like I was struggling to be like they die or like they just they like lose the ability to like you know what I mean? Revive themselves. What, what was she trying um, to tell you? I think like I that she just needed me to like stay in the game, but that was like not the right message. Oh, it's so it's so hard to be in somebody else's head to know to say something to somebody that you think is helping them get through a difficult time. And you are think you, you think you're throwing them a lifeline, but you're hitting them in the head with this huge lifesaver, <laughs> knocking them unconscious. So who who has been the most helpful to you in this in this journey you've been on? My kid, my son. Really? Why? How? How old is your son? He just turned four. And he's probably a sociopath because he doesn't care about my cancer at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it. I love it. It's like, it's more like having a puppy or like a wolf that lives in your house. Yeah. Like just partial destruction, but so much. It's just, it's this light, airy feeling you get and this warmth. I mean, he is not just the most beautiful thing to live for. But he is wonderful at making moments. Mm. And I find that I, it's like, it's like a different time. So I have my hospital time in the day and I've got my work time. And then there's Zach time. And Zach time can stretch on forever. So I thought you were going to tell me about your pediatric oncology friend. Oh, I have a great friend. His name's Ray. And he's usually the person I talk to when I have the horrible talks. Mm-hmm. So... Whenever I have to make a complicated medical decision, one that requires a lot of just volleying possibilities and what-ifs with incomplete information. Yes, that must be really hard. It's the worst because you know that there might be a bad choice and you might make it and there's no way you can know. And he is wonderful at coming into the room like scriptless and just saying, what can we know? And then once we've talked to the end of it, then we, he'll like put it in his calendar where he'll say, based on what we knew at 2 p.m. on this Tuesday, we made a choice that you feel peaceful about. And it's never going to be a perfect choice. It isn't. These are two elements of improvisation that are really important. One is not being bound by a script where mm. you say, I come in and I have to say these things and I have to say them a certain way. But... Instead, you respond to the person and the changing events, the uncertainty of the moment. And the other thing is, in improv, there's no mistake. Hmm. You can't make a mistake. It's hmm. just it's just what leads you to the next thing. You, yeah. you take a, a wrong turn. turns out it's not a wrong turn. It leads to the castle over there. Yeah. I think when someone really loves you, it, 
even just stumbling around when you're not sure what it is that like these are tough decisions right sure. and it's and you like you there's so many things to discuss and almost all of them would hurt your feelings if it was said by the wrong person but like when someone loves you and you're trying to like grapple with that unknown language like it really doesn't feel like you can make a mistake you just kind of discover what's possible together swimming together so here's the obvious question. Okay. When we're confronted with a friend yeah. or a loved one or even a stranger who's seriously ill, have you developed a, a, a theory about what's the best way to go about that? I don't know. Because people are, I think, because people are so different in how they react and whether they want, like, the intimacy of people talking about their illness with them or not, but... I love it when people are very practical. So mm. being like touch or food or offering rides or, but seeing you within the context of what is possible for you. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my life for a whole year was just hospital. So I, what I needed was a ride and for someone to be very quiet when they put all the drugs in so I could fall asleep. Mm. And like that involved just loving me enough to, to learn me. And to not, you know, not try to give me what they thought I should have, but just watch for a minute. That sounds crucial. Find out what what is real help. It's hard. And not what you want to impose on the other person thinking it's help. I mean, because people are trying to make the other person feel comfortable, not to make yourself feel so comfortable. I mean, and part of what I was doing at the time was I was writing this book and I was researching for an, another one because I wanted to get tenure to keep my job in a life I imagined I would live, maybe. Yeah, right. So, you are you know, you're doing all kinds of things for no reason because you just you have to imagine you'll keep living. So I was just really grateful when people would agree to be interviewed for my book or treat me like a scholar or laugh at my jokes, even if they're mm. dumb. And well, that's easy to do. <laughs> Your jokes are good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Try me out because uh, I, here's when I what I think I've learned talking to somebody who's just lost a husband or a wife or somebody who's very ill. What I tend to do is ask them very specific questions about it. Yeah. When, when did he die? What What happened? Did, how long did it take before help came? Things mm. I hear people start immediately to tell me the details of it in a way that sounds meaningful to them. Mm. Is that, is, could I do better than that? What do you think? Well, I think there's so many different stages too, especially if someone worries that their person has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. So often reviving those details, I'm sure can be really beautiful for people. Because I'm in the middle of it, I usually want people to ask less about my treatment. Oh, that's interesting. Because I'm aggressively bored of Mm. my own cancer Mm. and because I'm worried that I'm going to be eclipsed by something I didn't choose. So this is really interesting. If someone wants to make a connection with you, wants to be helpful, be emotionally present for you. Yeah. In just a brief conversation by the water cooler. Yeah. How can they know? Whether you're at a point where you want to tell about the details of what you're going through or you want to just talk about politics or baseball or whatever seems to come up. Yeah, because, I mean, right now I am finding small talk to be a real gift. Like it lets us stay on the superhighway of safe conversation as opposed to emotionally veering off into the highways and byways. Um, 
Well, I think the first thing I would hope is that people are not so overwhelmed with their own pity for me that they give me cocker spaniel face. It's like, cocker spaniel it's face. Like, turned <laughs> slightly to tilted to the side, and it just looks like, oh. Yeah. And I think like, oh, gosh, like this person wants something from me, and it is sad. I know. Uh, so trying to get over their own feelings as quickly as possible about my cancer would be amazing. Um, but just a good... I love it when people just do a quick acknowledgement, like, mm. oh, man, what a year What a year you've had. Mm. And then just – but it's not asking anything for no, me. No, and it gives you the chance to elaborate yeah. on the year you've had if you feel well, yeah. like it. Or talk about something else, yeah. something that's just like a light volley. Right. I imagine it, if they totally ignore it, if they haven't seen you in a while and it's the elephant in the room, that can be just as obtrusive. Yeah, I mean, so often I have thought that I'm starring in a reality show about this girl who has cancer, and she's pretty thrilled about it. <laughs> and like, and the other bit, too, is I would love it, because you talk a lot about tone, and I would love it if people just took a minute to watch someone else interact with someone in grief, mm-hmm. because it goes like, there's a there's like a tonal shape to the conversation I find really interesting. Like, there's the approach, and then someone goes... Meh, 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 meh. Like it's like the acknowledging the sad mm-hmm. thing. And the person goes, meh, and matches them there. And then they're trying to get out of the conversation. Mm. So they try to like whip it up a bit where they're like, meh, 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 meh. And that's <laughs> usually the point where they like pivot hard to minimizing or like, and a bright new day. Best wishes. Peace out. Out. And like, you do not have to make it easier or even like tell them that there's a better thing in order to get out of the conversation. Like they know it sucks. So yeah, I mean, don't feel like you need to give them the out. Just say, I'm so glad to see you. It makes my day to see you. And then just peace out. Oh, Moonwalk out of there. You'll be fine. They'll be fine. That's so great. It's wonderful to get this report from the front. <laughs> really, thank you for that. Because we all face these moments of grief and disability. Yeah. And the older we get, the more we're surrounded by both of those things. Yeah. And the more we need good, strong talk from people around us, not satisfying their own discomfort, but helping us deal with our discomfort and finding something that together we can dance out of it. Yeah, we can just both be human. Yeah. Thanks so much for all the things you've written and for this really lovely talk. I am so grateful to be here. But before you go, we've been taking a moment at the end of each show to ask our guests seven quick questions. See what you think. Question one, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, man. Uh, I wish I understood how people were feeling when I used certain words, like whether I thought I was breezy and I was actually being breezy. Yeah, I wish I could, like, feel it like a superpower. What do you wish other people understood about you? Oh, that I miss being human. Like, just a normal person people wanted to small talk. And that, like, two seconds ago, I was just like them. What's the strangest question anyone ever asked you? <laughs> Someone asked me what heaven is like. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm still alive. <laughs> I, I am not a hologram. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question four. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um... I, I sometimes I say, yeah, that sounds really important <laughs> as I'm, as I'm like making a hard transition. 
And or my family's amazing at saying things that don't sound like anything. Like, wow, how about that? And then quickly <laughs> asking them something else or offering an unrelated anecdote. How about that? That's a good one to put in my arsenal. You don't like say. That. Yeah, that's another one. You don't say. Yeah, that's good. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Oh, um, yes. Incredibly lucky people who are doing fine and are calling me from the beach. I mean, they're, they'll be okay <laughs> without my empathy. empathy <laughs> no, I got it. We're all topped up. <laughs> okay, number six. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> Just a big dove release. Um, yeah, I guess in person, because uh, I noticed that bad news, sometimes it's easier to be elliptical to let them get there. Like you kind of do a light circle around it until you can let them land on the weight of it. And so I find that's a lot easier to do in person when you have to, on the phone, you feel like you have to have like an agenda or like three things to say, but in person you can just let it And you have to feed circle. the pigeon, so that's normal. <laughs> exactly. Okay, number seven. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Oh, you know, because uh, this has happened, uh, I think if they let me know that my pain was a profound inconvenience mm. to their life. Oh, so you just would... re- remove them from the uncomfortable world. Well, no, they usually remove me Oh, yeah, from that. So, oh, so that yeah, ends the friendship. I think that's, that's it feels like if, if your humanity is a deep interruption, then it feels like it's kind of run its course. One last question. Can you update us on how you're doing? You said earlier you were going in for scans that extended your lifespan three months at a time. Is is that still how it is? The last scan, I had cut off all immunotherapy, and we were just checking to see if it was working or not, and it was holding. I got upgraded to four months of scans instead of three months. I feel like that's the way we'll be able to tell how I'm doing, is like how is my scan interval. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll have four months for a while. And then, man, when I get to six months, like, I'm going to be at the beach sending, (laughs) having (laughs) unsympathetic phone calls to other people. Yeah. Well, thanks for your humanity on the show. It's been great having you, Kate. (laughs) So good talking to you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Kate Bowler's best-selling book is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Check out her podcast, Everything Happens, at Apple Podcasts. And her website is katebowler.com. This episode of Clear and Vivid was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to my podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for the newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Play. 
planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Judge Judy is the judge 10 million people watch daily on television. Her decisions can change people's lives, and she knows she has a responsibility. If you're a doctor and you have no skill, your patients will die. And if you're an entertainer and not too entertaining, you're going to die. <laughs> and if you're a judge and fail to make judgments because you don't know people, then you shouldn't be a judge. Then you're really taking the lives of people and things that are important to them and saying really doesn't matter. And Judge Judy actually has a few tricks she uses to persuade people when she wants them to see things a little differently. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>